0: listening to ohio v the world in ohio history podcast subscribe to the show on itunes and stitcher and don't forget to rate and review us join the conversation now at facebook here's your host alex hasty
1: Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 10, Ohio versus Slavery. Today we're going to look at the history of the Underground Railroad and look at its history in Ohio. We've got two amazing guests. Um, We're recording in the Kelton House here just outside downtown Columbus with Mary Allerman. The Kelton House is an actual museum and historic home that was a stop on the Underground Railroad. We'll also go up to my alma mater, the College of Worcester in Northeast Ohio, where I graduated with a history major. And we're going to talk to a senior history major, Hope Nelson, who's done research at Worcester um, about the Underground Railroad in Worcester and in Northeast Ohio. We'll sit down with her. We traveled up to our old stomping grounds and and met with Hope, who's just an amazing young student um, and a history major at my alma mater as well, the College of Worcester. You can check them out, Woo history on Instagram. Um, they have great posts every day. They even did a little feature on, on us and the show. Uh, check them out on Instagram at History. And thanks again to Hope for joining us. But We're going to talk about slavery today, the darkest mark in American history, nearly 90 years from the signing of the Declaration of Independence to the end of the Civil War. Slavery was the law of the land in a good part of the United States, obviously more in the South, but even in the North for many years. And today we'll look at its very, very interesting history in Ohio, a northern state, across the River Jordan, as it was called by runaway slaves, the Ohio River. Freedom for many, but not total freedom. And in many cases, a number of runaway slaves would be caught in Ohio and sent back to the south, sent even further south. One place we'd love to send our our visitors again is to the Kelton House, we'll talk with Mary about their tours and the history of the Kelton House later, but also the Cincinnati, Ohio, which was a town that had an incredible amount of history surrounding the Fugitive Slave Act, slavery, runaway slaves uh, here in Ohio as a major port on the Ohio River just across the river from Kentucky. We'll talk about some of those stories today. But downtown Cincinnati is also home to the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, Located on the banks right across from the uh, Cincinnati Red Stadium, Great American Ballpark. You can visit them at freedomcenter.org to see what some of their exhibits are. But it is a huge, huge uh, space that just does incredible stuff. It opened in 2011. I advise everyone in Ohio, around Ohio, go take a look at that museum, the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Another guest we'll have today, and for another uh, couple later episodes, will be Sarah Marson. Sarah runs the Young Ohio Preservationists. We'll be talking about an exciting weekend they've got coming up, um, and also just about preser- you know, historical preservation in general. And again, she is the head of the Young Ohio Preservationists. Check them out on Facebook. Uh, they are a division of Heritage Ohio, which is the organization that does preser- historic preservation across the state. Uh, And Sarah does amazing work in the field of history and wants to get more people involved, more people who are into historic preservation, architecture, history, um, and even having a little bit of a good time and a couple of drinks. So we'll talk to Sarah about their big weekend coming up at the end of April. Speaking of a couple of drinks, our beer for the episode today, we are going to be having another Cincinnati beer, Mad Tree Brewing. Um, We're going to be drinking the Shade, a Goza. 4.6%, uh, it's a sour beer, kind of a blackberry tart beer. I had a, quite a few of these at a show my band played last month. It's got a big old tree on the front, like a lot of good Mad Tree beers. Check them out at madtreebrewing.com. Um, a very cool place. They do tours, of the, uh, of the and they have a tap room as well. Just north of downtown on 71 North uh, on Madison, Madison Road. They do tours. They have a bunch of beers. We featured them once before, but they are one of my favorites. Today we're drinking the shade. Trees were important to any escaping slave. We talk about William Wells Brown, one of the first playwrights, African-American playwrights, to have a play produced in the United States. The first novelist to be published in the 1850s. But in 1834, at the age of 20, born into slavery in Kentucky, his ship, his master had had captain, to, to the docks in Cincinnati. And while they're unloading the boat, William, as he was known, slips away. The fear he talks about in his autobiography, the fear of just being caught, of someone stopping him, the narrative of William W. Brown, a fugitive slave that he wrote. He walks to the end of the dock carrying a package. He sets it down and starts walking fast. He gets off the wharf. He gets off the dock into Cincinnati. It's night. He continues walking. He doesn't want to raise any suspicion. When he gets to a street that's dark enough and there's not a people on it, he sprints. He makes it a few blocks and he keeps going. And he made it away. The problem is, he made it away to what? We'll talk about the Underground Railroad. William Wells Brown gets outside Cincinnati. He has a little bit of food, but that runs out in a few days. But he would use trees. The, the moss, as he had been told, moss grows north on trees, on the north side of trees. He would feel a tree and continue to walk towards the moss, using the North Star as a guide if he could. Sometimes it was too cloudy. Sometimes you just couldn't see it at all. But he would use trees. He eventually escapes to Cleveland, helped by a man named Wells Brown who gives him his name, William Wells Brown. These Quaker abolitionists get him to Cleveland, where he works, and eventually becomes an abolitionist himself, helping many other people escape. He becomes a conductor on the Underground Railroad, leading people from Cleveland to the freedom of Canada. But again, William Wells Brown, the first published novelist, a playwright, an incredible American, his story started on the docks of Cincinnati when he made an escape. Slavery was the worst thing that's ever happened in this country. There's no going, we can't take it back now, but what we can do today is celebrate the story of runaway slaves and their courage to run away from their situations in the South. And the bold maneuvering by station masters, conductors on the Underground Railroad here in Ohio. We'll talk to Mary Allerman from the Kelton House, a historic home that was on the Underground Railroad here in Columbus. And We'll talk with young Hope Nelson, the history major senior from Worcester, uh, the College of Worcester, my alma mater, about the Underground Railroad in Ohio, Northeast Ohio, and even in Worcester itself in Wayne County. Our music today is from Paul Wenning, a good friendly friend of Miss Ohio V. The World. We went to Paul's wedding up in Spokane, Washington last fall. Uh, Check him out on SoundCloud, Paul Wenning, W-E-N-N-I-N-G. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. It's episode 10, Ohio vs. Slavery. First African slaves were brought to the colonies in 1619 by Dutch explorers to the colony of Jamestown in Virginia. Some 6 or 7 million are brought during the 18th century to the colonies. And later in the century, what was called the New United States. The advent of the cotton gin in the 1790s by Eli Whitney. You always hear about the cotton gin. It's actually a machine that would remove the seeds um, from the cotton. And it would do it instead of having to be hand-picked. It changed the game. And the South moves from an economy based with its most important crop being tobacco to cotton. Slave trade increases drastically. The northern states aren't dependent on cheap labor, and and they ban slavery in states like Ohio and the Northwest Territory by 1804. In 1808, the international slave trade is banned by Congress, but the domestic market thrives. And in the South, this peculiar institution, as it was called, nearly triples in size in the first 50 years of the 19th century. The Ohio legislature in 1824... Drafts a resolution and they send it to all the state's governors and they send it to Congress. The resolution is to basically recommend a plan for emancipation of the slaves. The Ohioans say, you know, slavery is a national evil and it urges the states of the Union to mutually participate in the duties and burdens of removing it. Seven or eight northern states sign on with, with Ohio and it's sent out to all the states. The southern states and their congressional representatives are howling with anger. This plan to emancipate slaves by the age of 21 if they agree to foreign colonization. Um, It's a dangerous idea, they say. They threaten secession, and they basically tell the Ohio legislature where they can stuff their resolution of 1824. To say the least, it doesn't go well. But beginning in 1830, the Underground Railroad begins taking shape, The term underground railroad comes from Ohio. Escaped slave Tice Davids gets away, and his master says it's like he ran to an underground road. And that would later be, you know, the popularity of railroads become the underground railroad. And a lingo develops from the underground railroad. Things like stations would be a place where you can stay. Station masters, conductors would be people who would take you from stop to stop the River Jordan was was what they called the Ohio River, like we said earlier. The promised land was known as Canada. We asked Mary Allerman, you know, what was the Underground Railroad? And we talked a little bit about some of that lingo.
0: It was really not a railroad. Um, that was just a term. Um, people come here expecting to see the railroad tracks that they took the uh, Underground Railroad underneath the house or something, but it really wasn't.
1: What, what's a conductor on the Underground Railroad? That You've is a that.
0: person who will actually take you from one stop to the next stop. So they are the people who might be driving the the wagons. Um, they might be walking way ahead of you to... Um, to guide you. But they were the people who actually are moving runaways. Um, And then people who had the homes or the businesses or the churches where you would actually stop were often referred to as station masters.
1: Right. And the stations being the the kind of the safe houses, Mm -hmm. the stops. Right. Um, There was, you know, all kinds of coded language. I even saw uh, they called, you know, the Ohio River the River Jordan or something like that, right? Because what, what, Freedom. Yeah, exactly. Freedom.
0: And um, the Ohio River is the is the uh, delineator between Kentucky, which was a slave state, and Ohio, which was a free state.
1: It's very difficult to know how many slaves, runaway slaves, took to the Underground Railroad. Eric Foner, who wrote a, a, a very important book on the Underground Railroad, a famous historian, he numbers it at around 30,000. I've seen as high as, you know, 80, 90,000. It's probably somewhere in the middle there, 50,000, 60,000. You know, we hear that only three tenths, three out of every ten that run actually make it to freedom. They either get caught, they just don't make it. Um, they run out of food, whatever it is. It's difficult to know. We talked to Hope Nelson, who did the research. Um, and Hope Nelson is just a... A beacon that these millennials, these kids, are all right. Um, she's got such a such a uh, energy for for history, and and is going to go on and do great things. But we talked to her about you know being a history major and doing the research on the Underground Railroad in in Worcester and in Northeast Ohio. How difficult that is. Um, you know, this was a an illegal activity, and it, a lot of records were not kept for obvious reasons. So. We talked to her about you know, the difficulty in researching the Underground Railroad, and we talked to Hope just about some of the misconceptions surrounding the Underground Railroad and, and you know, everyone trying to either take credit for it. But it really was a very rare thing to be a conductor or a station master on the Underground Railroad here in Ohio.
2: So one of the major challenges in studying the Underground Railroad is the lack of documentation. So it's important to bear in mind that participating in the Underground Railroad was an illegal activity um, punishable by up to $1,000 and up to six months in jail. So it makes sense that we have very few surviving records. Um, What this means is that scholars are forced to rely on a lot of abolitionist memoirs um, published post-Civil War, in addition to local legends and family stories passed down through the generations. Um, which in turn bring a sort of new set of challenges. So the majority of the sources that I encountered were newspaper articles, letters, as well as written accounts of family histories. Um, A large number of these sources came from letters written to Ohio State University professor William Siebert. Um, So as a part of his sort of research, um, he sent out a number of questionnaires across Ohio to his students' families asking about their involvement in the Underground Railroad. Due to the fact that we have to rely on these sort of abolitionist memoirs that um, often portray the Underground Railroad as this sort of huge, expansive network. Right. Um, it sort of skewed the public's perception of what it is. And... I think for a lot of white people they wanted to distance themselves from that narrative, the narrative of being, you know, pro slavery. Um, so with that sort of misguided perception that it is this huge network, a lot of uh, people have attached themselves to that narrative and said, "Oh, it could be my family that was helping. Oh, there's this random cellar in the bottom bottom of my house. It was probably for the underground railroad." Right. Um and so I think it's a it's a history that People want to be a part of.
1: You know, there wasn't a map or a bus schedule that you could carry with you if you were a runaway slave. You know, a series of of the stops. You know, they weren't known to all, especially a runaway slave who left from a Tennessee or a Virginia, he makes his way into Ohio. You know, this is all part of a hidden world. There weren't signs. You know, a lot of times the conductors didn't know the entire network themselves, even though they were part of it. You just know your part, where to take them on the next place north, where the next stop is. We talked to Mary just about that compartmentalized nature of the Underground Railroad here in Ohio and elsewhere.
0: Um, The Underground Railroad was successful in part because it was kept secret and... um, Part of that was because they compartmentalized it. So as a, as a conductor, I might know the stop behind me, and I might know the stop in front of me, but I didn't know anything beyond that. So it was easier to keep things secret when you compartmentalize like that. So you don't have, there was no big picture, there was no big grand management structure of the Underground
1: Railroad. It took a hell of a lot of bravery to run. To run for your freedom, as so many thousands of, of African slaves did in the United States. You know, like we said, maybe only three of ten made it, as some guesses by historians. But imagine the heroism. Not knowing where you're going, just knowing that you're trying to go north. Mary you know, talks about how a lot of these people have never even been to cities. They've only been on plantations. They've only heard stories. They make a plan, and they take their family in many cases, and they run. We talked to Mary about just the bravery it took to even be a runaway.
0: Well, the words that usually cause people to want to run were the slave buyers are coming, because that meant that everything that you had known was about to change. And that could mean that families would be separated. That could mean friends would be gone. Um, so as bad as life was, they were there making the best of it until they heard that their, basically their family could be broken up. And that was often the impetus for people to run. And you're right, they didn't know anything about Canada. Some of them had never even seen a town. And they are going to go north, um, guided by maybe just a star in the sky. There were runaways who made it to freedom and then turned around and went back to help others. Um, the best example of that is obviously Harriet Tubman, who went back and forth and back and forth. Um, so. In that sense they might have someone to lead them but that was rare and mostly they were just going from place to place and if they were lucky enough to find someone who was willing to help them then they could get connected to the next safe house and the next safe house
1: a number of heroes on the Underground Railroad, and a number of routes. You'd see routes from Cincinnati, up near almost Dayton, to Finley, to, to places north like Toledo, where you could find a boat that would take you across to Canada. Or a place like Ripley, Ohio, along the, the Ohio River, was a, was a very popular starting point. A man named John Rankin had a house on top of the hill Stairway to freedom. I mean, this, this bluff that he lives on overlooked the Ohio River. You know, dozens and dozens of stairs leading up to his place. He could look over the entire area. He'd use a light system on his porch. And slaves would know it would be an okay time to cross. He would house them, turn them over to John Parker, a free African-American living just outside of Ripley. He would take them from the stairway to freedom, and he would take them to points north, him and his network freed thousands of slaves, it said. But you could also get caught, very easily get caught. Ohio was not immune to, to racism. Um, and in one case, there's a man named John Van Zant. His case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, a Hamilton County resident. Um, he comes across nine fugitive slaves and tries to lead them to freedom, seven of which end up getting caught one that ultimately did escape, but Van Zant was—it was a was, case. Was called Jones versus Van Zant. Went all the way to the Supreme Court in the 1840s, and Van Zant was represented by Salmon P. Chase, who we talked about in episode episode eight, former governor, senator, chief justice of the United States from Cincinnati, ably represents him. But the Supreme Court rules against him and says that Van Zant must compensate the slave owner Jones, a Kentucky slave owner. Um. They rule against them in, in March of 1847, and the federal government determines at that point that they had the power to enforce slavery, It'd be an important ruling as we moved forward. But these are the types of cases, and they're happening in Ohio. You know, we asked both Hope uh, first, and then we'll ask Mary, why was Ohio so important in the Underground Railroad?
2: So it's primarily because of its ideal geographic location. Yeah. So Ohio bordered two slave states, Virginia and Kentucky, and offered, offered one of the shortest routes uh, sure. to, yeah, uh, to Cleveland and across Lake Erie to Canada. Um, Ohio, Ohio also had a really strong abolitionist spirit, um, especially with towns like Oberlin, um, where the Wellington Oberlin Slave Rescue
0: took place. That's- Location, location, location. It is all about Ohio's location. We are directly north of Kentucky, which was a slave state. So we are clearly one of the southernmost uh, free states in the in the U.S. and Virginia, and, and exactly next to Virginia, and um, in addition, we have the southernmost access point to. Canada. We are a boat ride away from Canada. So when the goal is to get to Canada, this was the closest place. So basically, a lot of runaways felt like the only thing they had to do was cross Ohio to freedom. So that's what made, uh, I think there are 130 documented routes on the Underground Railroad through the state of Ohio, all of it converging up on that Lake Erie area.
1: Ohio had all kinds of important figures on the Underground Railroad. Look at someone like Levi Coffin, a Quaker abolitionist working out of Cincinnati in the 1840s and 50s. He's called the president of the Underground Railroad, Levi Coffin. It's said that he led 3,000 runaway slaves to freedom. If you take Eric Foner, the historian's number, that only 30,000 eventually reached complete emancipation. That's basically saying one out of every 10 slaves were helped to freedom by Levi Coffin of of Cincinnati, Ohio. It's an amazing number, 3,000 people that he freed over about a 12-, 13-year period. But, you know, you could take a route. It didn't have to be Cincinnati or Ripley. Uh, The city of Marietta was another place where runaway slaves, the first city in Ohio, in southeast Ohio. Take them up to places like Cambridge, and you find your way west or north all the way up to a place like Worcester, just south of Cleveland and Wayne County. And from Worcester, you could get yourself to Cleveland or Sandusky and catch a boat and catch freedom in in Canada. We asked Hope uh, about the Underground Railroad in a city in Northeast Ohio like Worcester. She did the research. She's a history major at the College of Worcester. Um, She's got a great, there's a great YouTube if you type in Hope Nelson or College of Worcester Underground Railroad, Uh, a great seminar she did with a uh, professor from Oberlin. Really cool. It's how I found out about Hope. Um, and we asked her about her research into the city of Worcester and, uh, and their history with the Underground Railroad.
2: Absolutely. Um, there was two primary uh, routes going through Wayne County, which is where Worcester is located, um, one of which went through directly mm-hmm. um, through Worcester. From 1830 to 1860, there were two different homes um, that accepted fleeing slaves. Um, The first belonged to Robert Taggart, um, who owned a farm about one mile west of Worcester, and the second belonged to a lawyer named Eugene Pardee, whose home actually still stands today. Um, Both men were outspoken anti-slavery advocates in the county. Robert Taggart's barn was burned down by pro-slavery neighbors in 1850. Um, As a well-known abolitionist and treasurer of the anti-slavery society, he became a target for those pro-slavery advocates. In
1: 1850, the laws regarding slavery in the United States undergo a drastic change. As what's called part of the 1850 Compromise, California is admitted as a free state. Slavery is abolished in Washington, D.C. All this sounds really good. Unfortunately, the fugitive slave law that was on the books is strengthened. And the federal government decides to enforce the Fugitive Slave Act with its new, even more draconian uh, conditions. You know, following the victory in the Mexican War, um, you know, states like California, the New Mexico Territory, Utah Territory are won. And it leads to more states coming into the Union, pressure on the Congress as to how they're going to admit these states as free or slave. The compromise that's made leads to the Fugitive Slave Act. You know, you watch the movie 12 Years a Slave, but basically everyone in the North is put in becomes a slave, a slave hunter. A slave that escapes to the North must be returned by citizens. Anyone caught helping or not returning a known slave is in trouble financially and possibly with jail. The Fugitive Slave Act had incredible consequences, Um, and, and we talk about some of those with Mary and with Hope, the consequences of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850.
0: Well, history tells us that the Fugitive Slave Act was passed because the Underground Railroad was working, and they needed a way to stop. The Southern legislators needed a way to stop that movement of runaways because it was economically, um, it was actually costing them money. So they wanted to put an end to it. So the solution was this draconian 1850 Um, Fugitive Slave Act, and in this instance, what that did was create a lot of displeasure amongst Northerners, because one one of the pieces of the Fugitive Slave Act said anyone on the street could be deputized by a federal marshal to help them capture a runaway, and for many people, they felt like they just made slave catchers out of everybody, and while you might you might have been an abolitionist, you might not have been doing anything to be part of the Underground Railroad, because there were so many things that could go wrong, and it could cost you um, your family, your your um, income. So it wasn't really until this draconian measure was passed that more people were Um, felt like they needed to do something, not just talk about it, but to do something.
2: What really the fugitive slave... Act did for uh, the Underground Railroad was it meant that slaves were no longer able to just find sanctuary in the north. They had to go all the way or south to Mexico. Um, Also, the number of slave catchers increased significantly, um, as well as it became a federal crime to assist any escaping slave. Um, So it actually became punishable for those who are assisting slaves. Yeah, and so it's a common misconception actually that. Um, the North was almost exclusively, uh, anti-slavery. Um, most often, uh, you lived alongside, uh, pro-slavery and anti-slavery neighbors.
1: Slave Act brings slavery to the forefront of northerners' minds. They're brought into the fight on the side of pro-slavery and on the abolition side. Slave hunters roam the land, bounty hunters, looking for escaped slaves from the South. And like you saw in, in 12 Years a Slave, sometimes not grabbing the right person. But a free man in Ohio, a free black man, was no longer safe. The money that is given to people who return the slaves, the penalties for not turning in a runaway slave. Ohio becomes a much more dangerous place.
0: And the thing to remember is just how much money was involved here. Um, as a bounty hunter, or even as an ordinary citizen who sees a runaway, if you turn that person in, in today's currency, it would be worth anywhere from eighty to to $100,000. Wow. So you can see the temptation. In fact, when we have high school students who come, I ask, would you be tempted to turn in someone? You do not know them, they don't look like you, and you have no connection whatsoever. However, that money that you get could enable your family to buy a home, Um, buy a horse and wagon. It could educate your children. So getting to Ohio was really no different than getting to Lexington. You're, you're just as much enslaved in Ohio as you are in um, Kentucky. So it really wouldn't make any difference. So, and that was one of the tragedies is that you couldn't just make it to the, to the free states.
1: Canada becomes the ultimate goal of a runaway slave. Not Ohio, not Cleveland or Toledo, but actually getting across Lake Erie. We asked Mary about in the land of the free, as it was called the promised land, Canaan, as some of the African-Americans would call Canada.
0: Well, in the 1830s, um, Great Britain outlawed slavery. So Canada, as part of the Commonwealth, um, was no longer allowed to have slavery. Not that I think it was terribly important there anyway, but it was completely outlawed. There, w- there could be no slaves. So uh, making it to Canada meant making it to freedom. Now, people probably started trying to run away from the moment that the first um, African arrived here and was put into uh, slavery. but there really was not a destination um, initially. They usually stayed in the vicinity because their families were there and of course they would get caught because the option of going back was not there. They could not go they couldn't cross the Atlantic so, And then when the Northwest Territories opened up, it seemed like that could be a destination, but um, that was, Court Case took that one away as well. So now they really, you know what, up until the 1830s, they don't have a destination. They can run, but where are they going to go? And um, in the 1830s, they finally had a destination, and that was Canada. Now, a lot of the runaways from Perhaps Louisiana, that area, would go down to Mexico. But there were no guarantees. I mean, you might be free, but there were no guarantees. And Running West also put you into... Uh, traditionally Native American areas, and there were no guarantees about what would happen at that point either. So um, Canada was was the one place in North America that they knew if they got there, their freedom was a given.
1: Ohioans are pushed into the fight, the abolition fight, in the 1850s for sure. Families like the Keltons were here today at the Kelton House. They joined the Underground Railroad in 1852. They were abolitionists. They married, and abolitionists are united in this cause. We talked to Mary about, about the Kelton House um, and, and just exactly you know how it fit into the network of the Underground Railroad. Um, you can go to keltonhouse.com. We'll drop some more information on their tours, guided, self-guided tours uh, with audio, and also uh, actually guided tours on Sundays. Um, and we'll give you all that information at the end of the episode. But go to keltonhouse.com. We have our own Underground Railroad station here in central Ohio.
0: Probably the next stop from here was either the Neal House, which is a fraternity house on campus now. There are still tunnels underneath that house that go to the river, to the Olentangy River. Wow. Um, now, I don't... I. I don't know if that's true or not, but I am told that. Um, so that could have been a stop. Or the Southwick, Southwick Good Funeral Home on High Street, yeah, um, near between, I guess, Hudson oh, and- Clintonville area. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a Methodist church run by the Reverend John Bull, and he was a famed and, and vocal abolitionist, so he had a stop there. And again, There is a secret room in that place, Um, but it was also a speakeasy in the 1920s. So, (laughs) there it's unclear whether that was for it worked for both. Yeah, I mean, was it was it used for the runaways or was it used for the alcohol? So (laughs) they did hide runaways in the barns. Um, We think they probably hid them in the attics, and um, then there is the cellar down below. Now. We have created a room in the lower level of the house that we call our theater room, and it is made to resemble what we think would have been a hideaway for runaways. Unlike some of the other homes that are on the on the Underground Railroad, there is no secret room here at the Kelton House because, again, the house was built in 1852, which is after the draconian... Eight, uh, Fugitive slave act so how would you tell an architect to design a secret hmm. room and how would you tell a contractor that they are going to build a secret room
1: who was martha hartway uh you know we we we, re- we read about her when we were doing our research on the kelton house um and just tell you know our listeners about her amazing story
0: martha is really the reason that um we know this house was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Again, nothing written down. But um, Martha Hartway was 10 years old. She had a sister, Pearl, who was 14. And they left a plantation, we think in Powton County, Virginia, and made their way to, um, to Ohio. And how they did it, we, they never talked about subsequently, but they did get here. The problem for them was that Martha was ill, and she was really too sick to go on. And Pearl needed to go, because staying here was not safe for her. Uh, Columbus, Ohio was not a safe place for runaways. There were bounty hunters everywhere, people had settled in Franklinton from Kentucky and Virginia, so they had no problem with uh, turning in runaways on principle. Um, so it was not a safe place. So Pearl needed to move on. Martha needed to, um, to recover and get better. And Pearl did not have, couldn't stay here for two or three weeks. It was just too dangerous. It was too dangerous for the Keltons and it was really too dangerous for her. (coughs) So she, um, she left and Martha stayed, but, Uh, for whatever reason we can only conjecture that she was only 10 and the Keltons just did not think it was right to put her back on the Underground Railroad. They did not put her back on the Underground Railroad by herself. They kept her here. They raised her with her with their children and um, she eventually would marry their handyman Thomas Lawrence and they married in the front parlor just like all the other Kelton children did and they bought a piece of property from ella kelton who was by then married and her husband sold them a piece of property so that they could farm further away and they had two children they had sarah ella who was named after ella kelton and then they had a son who was named after we we believe the closest in age of the kelton children to martha and probably her best friend growing up, and that was Arthur Kelton. And so their son was Arthur Kelton Lawrence. And Arthur Kelton Lawrence was the first African-American to graduate from the Ohio State Medical School. And he was one of the very first black doctors in Columbus. So I find it fascinating that in this family, you go from enslavement to physician in a generation.
1: Like the Kelton House, historic buildings preserved by people like Sarah Marsom. Sarah's going to join us to talk about the Rust Belt Takeover. Sarah runs the Young Ohio Preservationists, the YOP. You can find them on Facebook, Young Ohio Preservationists, and they're having the Rust Belt Takeover. It's a meetup of other young preservationist societies from New York and other places in Ohio and Detroit uh, and other you know surrounding cities. So Pittsburgh. Um, We talked to Sarah just about what is historical preservation. The weekend, which is from April 27th to the 29th, all the great events they've got planned uh, and how you can be a part of it. Go to their Facebook page. Everything is free. I was surprised to learn. Here's our interview. Part of our interview with Sarah Marsom. What does it mean, Sarah, to be a preservationalist? What, What does that actually mean?
3: A historic preservationist is somebody who is passionate about saving history, and we largely focus on the built environment. So buildings, but it could also mean cultural landscapes like Bears Ears in Utah or the wonderful Serpent Mound here in Ohio or it could even just mean stories, the stories of the heritage of an area and somebody's, say, their family recipe to cook. So we're Historic Preservationists. We kind of are the fun history nerds. So we're part of the Rust Belt Coalition of Young Preservationists. We've got friend groups in New York, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Michigan, Indiana, and we host regional gatherings to help share ideas and best tactics to be advocates for your community. One of my favorite tours in Pittsburgh, they have one of the largest collections of city steps, and that was a primary mode of transportation because it's such a hilly city. So there's certain homes that you still can only get to by a staircase. Um, So we did a city tour where we just walked up and down the old stairs and learned whether or not the city is going to be able to preserve them. And we worked up a big sweat. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the tour, we ended up Wiggle Distillery, which is the first distillery to open in Pittsburgh since Prohibition. So we had a good drink. So we have lots of unconventional tours that tell a little bit of history. We always have a good libation to have. (laughs) Very Um, important. Very very important. important.
1: You are organizing the Rust Belt Takeover weekend here in Columbus. That's at the end of April, I think the 27th through the 29th. Yes. Friday to Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us just about that weekend. I mean, what, what's, uh, what are you guys going to be doing? It's here in Columbus. You know, who's coming down and, and how can our listeners get involved?
3: Well, listeners can get involved by following us on Facebook. That's where we're posting most of our regular updates on the Young Ohio Preservationist page. And we have a fun wide range of events scheduled. One of the things that I'm most looking forward to is we've partnered with the Fort Hayes Art School, which is incredibly unique for Columbus. They've converted an old army fort that was in operation well through the 1900s, and they are slowly reusing the buildings for high schoolers to teach them different modes of art. We are going to showcase a lot of the great local artists in Columbus. We're going to do artist spaces in historic places. So one of the tour options will be getting to visit 400 West Rich, which was an old porcelain and enamel factory.
1: Yeah, and
3: you're going to get to tour Stephen Takis, his studio. He does tin types, so you'll even get to learn about a historic art form That's there. Cool. We're also doing a Green Motorist book tour. The Green Motorist guidebook was published in the early 1900s for African Americans so that they could know safe places for them to go while traveling for lodging, restaurants otherwise, so that they would not be potentially harassed. So we're going to have a great African American cultural tour based on that guidebook.
1: What was the name of that guidebook?
3: The Green Motorist guidebook.
1: I've never heard of it. That's really cool.
3: The New York Public Library did a huge digitization project of it the past year, so you can easily research the different guides in different states.
1: What does it cost for someone to get involved in the weekend, and how would they actually sign up and do all that kind of stuff so they know where to find you guys?
3: Thanks to support from the Create Columbus Commission, all tours will be free. We really want to make this accessible to anybody who's interested in history or maybe just wants a sneak peek at one of these rarely open buildings like Jimmy Ray's on Broad Street, the old fire engine house. We're going to get to have you in there.
1: Nice.
3: Um, so like I said, it'll just be on Facebook. The registration for the events, because certain tours will have caps, will be live in March, and we'll have registration up until the week of the event, which is April 27th to 29th.
1: And thanks so much to Sarah for joining us, Young Ohio Preservationist. The Rust Belt Takeover, April 27th to the 29th. Uh, get involved with that. It's really cool. Uh, we're going to try and make a few of those events ourselves. Go on Facebook and follow them Young Ohio Preservationists. As we get back into our story of the Underground Railroad, in 1857, a landmark decision comes down from the Supreme Court. A landmark decision known as the Dred Scott case decided on in March of 1857, the opinion written by virulent racist Chief Justice Roger Taney of the U.S. Supreme Court. But what Dred Scott says is it says that basically a free free African American such as Dred Scott cannot sue for his freedom, nor is he free to have any standing in federal court. He cannot be an American citizen, um... And basically, his owners can take him back to free, from a free state to a slave state. It is probably the worst decision in Supreme Court history. The decision sets off a wave of civil disobedience. Abolitionists realize that they're playing for keeps. Events like the Oberlin-Wellington Rescue, uh, when a Kentucky slave, John Price, is captured in Oberlin in 1858, a year after the Dred Scott decision. A U.S. marshal takes him to Wellington, Ohio, by train. 37 members of the Oberlin community go to Wellington and by force take John Price back from U.S. marshal custody and end up taking him to Canada. The case, 37 of them were indicted. Um, I think only a couple end up actually going to court. But the case gets national attention. And acts like that happen all over the United States. The Wellington, Oberlin-Wellington uh, Rescue is actually something that is replayed at the Kelton House. They do some theatrical performances, uh, and they have an entire play dedicated to those events in 1858 in Northeast Ohio. Another very important case is the case of Margaret Garner. Margaret's story takes over the national news. She and her, her family, her three kids, I think that she had with her, three or four, and her husband, escaped from Kentucky, actually across the frozen Ohio River, they actually walk across the Ohio River, which I think is just so incredible. Uh, it was a very cold winter, obviously, just like the winter we've had this year. But they walk across the river in Cincinnati to a relative's house in Cincinnati, and they're quickly surrounded. We ask uh, of Hope Nelson to discuss what happens next in one of the most sensationalized stories of the end of slavery here in the United States. happens in Ohio with Margaret Garner and her family in Cincinnati.
2: Margaret Garner was actually born as a slave in Kentucky in 1834. Um, In January of 1856, she, her husband, and their four children uh, fled across the Ohio River into Cincinnati um, along with a party of other slaves. Um, The party later split, uh, fearing capture from slave catchers. Um, But once in Cincinnati, the Garner family became surrounded in a relative's home by Archibald Gaines and the US Marshals. They don't get very far, um, and once surrounded, uh, Margaret's husband, Robert, actually attempted to defend the family with a pistol, um, and... Oh,
1: yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah, and so, actually, instead, rather than being forced back into slavery, um, Margaret proceeded to slit the throat of her two-year-old, um, daughter, as well as stabbing her remaining children and then turning the knife, um, on herself. Um, while her daughter died immediately, Margaret and her remaining children did survive, um, only to be uh, taken into, cont- into custody and returned. Saying that uh, being dead and being sent to heaven or some sort of afterlife was a much better alternative than being returned to slavery.
1: Margaret Garner goes to trial. Governor Salmon P. Chase uh, wants her back in, in, in Ohio to face you know, the murder charges. But the trial does nothing more but continue to perpetuate this story, send it all over the country, that a woman would kill her own child instead of having them be placed back in slavery. How bad are things in this country? A, a number of, of white Americans, it causes them, Margaret Garner causes them to finally think about what, what are we doing? you know, the civil war as the country races towards dissolution, this is eighteen fifty nine, we're talking about just a year, year and a half before the war. The Southern states would say that the war was about states' rights, states rights, states rights. But it was about slavery. I mean the Fugitive Slave Act alone shows that states right argument by the Confederacy to be to be a myth. And no other law that I can think of at the time was there more federal intrusion on the rights of states? The northern states, these free states, were no longer free. The federal government had basically deputized marshals and other Americans to, to you know, overstep those state laws. The Future of Slave Act was wildly supported in the South. It was the only thing they got out of that compromise of 1850. But it's one of the most anti-states rights laws ever written. The last slave taken under the Fugitive Slave Act was Lucy Bagby. She was, a Cle- she was in Cleveland. She was a free woman in Cleveland uh, until U.S. Marshals snatched her up. She became the cause celeb of many Cleveland abolitionists, a very very storied abolition town, Cleveland on the lake, um, ripe with runaway slaves due to its position on, on Lake Erie, um, and a number of free African Americans. People like, you know, William Wells Brown, like we talked about in the intro. But Lucy ultimately is sent away. Despite all the efforts and fundraisers and, and free, legal, uh, free legal teams, Lucy Bagby is sent back down south. But she escapes during the war. And she actually comes back to Cleveland in 1863. And there's a huge party upon her return. It would have been such a fun party to go to. Lucy's free. And at this point, the war finally started to turn in the North's favor. But a huge party up in Cleveland for Lucy Bagby. As we close here today, we want to ask Mary just, you know, she takes students on tours of the Kelton House. And Mary tries to reach these kids on on a weekly basis to think about their freedom. To think about all that African Americans in this country, and even here in Ohio, had to endure.
0: Most history is children learning about adults doing adult things. It's very difficult to relate to that as a child. Um, but our story is a child um, doing something that they can totally relate to, a 10-year-old who makes her way to Ohio and, um, in an attempt for freedom. If I have a takeaway for them, I want them to understand that freedom is never free and someone, somewhere has paid a price for everyone who comes to be free. And this tells you the price people are willing to pay for their freedom. You know, most of the, as I say to the students who are here, every single one in this room is free and you have very little understanding of that you very little appreciation of it but you look at these runaways who were willing to leave everything they knew behind they were willing to take great risks um and when you think about crossing the ohio river or the lake erie in a rickety boat and you don't know how to swim and you're fully aware that um if that boat sinks there's nothing you can do you will not be saved and they got into the boat and they put their children into the boat for that small opportunity to be free as a mother I wouldn't even let my children look at that boat, much less put them in because I don't have to Um, and there's nothing I've ever wanted enough that would put I would put my children into that boat but that's how much they wanted to be free, and that's what I hope—I try really hard to have um, our our school children take away—is just the value of their freedom.
1: From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound. From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler to From the Queen City to Licari Blue Edison and a Man on the Moon So many books which will we choose I like reading I like reading. Our book recommendation for today is Bound for Canaan. The epic story of the Underground Railroad, America's First Civil Rights Movement. It's by Fergus Bordowicz. Um, it's a really cool book. It tells the story of, you know, the Underground Railroad from its beginning into its end. Uh, it talks about people like Harriet Tubman, obviously. Uh, who is running out of a uh, Baltimore area. Uh, it talks about David Ruggles, uh, the man who basically invented the New York Underground. Um, and even has a lot about Levi Coffin from Cincinnati, who we talked about, who possibly led more, uh, more people to freedom than anyone else. And It talks about the Underground Railroad in Ohio and the importance of the Buckeye State in America's first civil rights movement. I um, want to thank, first of all, Hope Nelson, uh, you got to check out her YouTube video. Type in Underground Railroad Northeast Ohio, um, and, and you'll see that great presentation from, from 2016. Um, follow woo, Worcester History, Woo History on Instagram. Uh, they did, like I said, did a little feature on us in the show a couple weeks back. So you can go back and check that out on Instagram at Woo, W O O History. Um, Independent Study IS Day is coming up. Um, so good luck to Hope and everybody. We have to do what's called independent study, our junior and senior year in Worcester, um, where you write basically really long papers. Um, You know, my senior IS is probably 130, 140 pages, like a little book. Um, But IS Day, they get to just have a huge parade, everything's done, they have a few drinks, it's a huge day in Worcester, so congratulations to Hope Nelson, uh, class of 2018, on her IS Day. You know, Hope really makes me comfortable, the kids these days really do get history. Um, and that we're going to be all right when it comes to that. Now, as for my IS day back in the, the early to mid-2000s at Worcester, I turned mine in with about 15 minutes to spare. I had some printing issues that morning, but but we won't get into that. purpose of the podcast is to raise money for high school seniors, um, and we do an Ohio history-based audio or video essay contest starting this year. So um, stay tuned for more details about that, but hope... Awesome, thank you so much. Lastly, we want to talk really quick with Mary about the Kelton House. Um, KeltonHouse.org. You can go, we'll tell you all about the tour information. Uh, very cool place if you're here in central Ohio. Um, if you want to learn about the Underground Railroad and, and stay close to home. Um, and here's what we talked to Mary just about how you can go visit the Kelton House and experience this important history for yourself.
0: Every day from 10 until 4 we are open for a self-guided audio tour so you take your device and you are led around to the rooms and um a voice in the on there tells you all about the things isn't, in the it's rooms. your voice isn't well it? one of them <laughs> <laughs> so um you can do that any time between 10 and 4, you do have to start your tour by 3 um, because the museum closes at 4. And then on on Sundays, we have guided docent tours from 1 to 4. And um, on the second Sunday of the month, you can see some sort of reenactment. It might be me playing Sophia Kelton. It might be someone playing a runaway. It might be someone playing... Um, and a, a lawyer who was involved in the Oberlin Wellington Rescue. Um, so any of those things are possible um, on the second Sunday of the month.
1: And your tours on Sunday, I think, start at 1, 2, yes. and 3, mm-hmm. correct? That's going to do it for Episode 10. Thank you guys so much. Thanks to Mary Allerman from the Kelton House, Hope Nelson from the College of Worcester. Um, also, we want to remind you, go check out the Young Ohio Preservationists on Facebook. Thanks to our guest Sarah Marsom, we're going to have her back on to discuss the Rust Belt takeover at the end of April uh, here in Columbus. So thanks again to Sarah. Uh, finishing up our last Mad Tree shade here, uh, great sour. You can taste. I can taste that sea salt. Really good beer. Um, go check them out down in Cincinnati, Mad Tree Brewing. For our next episode, guys, we're going to stay in the 19th century. We're going to talk about the most interesting man in the world. We're going to talk about John Hay, one of my favorite. Historical figures. Uh, we'll talk to the author, uh, John Tolliver, an incredible author. Very, uh, very cool of him to talk to us. He has written some amazing books, including All the Great Prizes from Lincoln to Roosevelt, The Story of John Hay, um, written back in 2013, but just an awesome book. We talked for an hour and 20 minutes, and we're going to talk about John Hay next week in Ohio versus the Gilded Age. So, really looking forward to that episode. Thank you guys so much. Share the show. Share Ohio V. The World on Facebook, Instagram. Tell your friends at the next cocktail party. Go down and rate and review us. Uh, Five stars, even if you don't like the show, let me know Um, because we're always trying to improve. Just scroll down on iTunes below the description there, and you can leave us a a rating and a review just on your phone real quick. That really helps us move up the rankings. You can email me at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com with show ideas, any events you're doing. That's how Sarah got a hold of me to tell me about the Young Ohio Preservationists. Uh, we sat down and met and thought, wow, this is really important stuff. Let's get you on the show. So shoot me an email, uh, shoot us a message on Facebook, and we will see you guys next week for Ohio versus the Gilded Age.